This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. What's happening? Oh, sorry, I had music on. <laughs> so usually, that. usually I'm listening to iTunes while I'm waiting for you to call to get sure. pumped up, yeah. listening to like punk or ska. Uh-huh. And so this time I was listening in audio. And usually with iTunes, if once I answer the call, it like nicely fades out the music. Does it? You know, I blabber for an hour, and then when the call ends, it like comes back in, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, this song." It doesn't do that with audio, oh. so it's like you were t- trying to talk to me, and I was still listening. To the <laughs> nice. Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Boston, and this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Build Phase. Yeah, listening to Goldfinger and looking at the IMDb page for Ed Bigley Jr. <laughs> what the hell? What is happening I, over there? <laughs> I was trying to remember what Ed Bigley Jr. was from. You, did you just like remember the name Ed Bigley Jr.? You're like, I don't even I was, know who Ed Bigley I, I, Jr. is. <laughs> you don't know who Ed Bigley Jr. is? I was I talking about head. I don't even know how to yesterday. spell that. Ed. Bagley, like B-E-G. I'm spelling it like I'm spelling it like Bagley. Bagley. <laughs> no, it's not. You sure? Ed Bagley Jr. No, yeah. he's not. No, he's not a carb. He's an actor. Mm, I don't know if I believe you. Saint Elsewhere. Okay. Pineapple Express. Oh. This is Spinal Tap. I, I think his name was Sam Sitwell from Arrested. Oh, okay. I know who that is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you would have said that. <laughs> okay. So I'm guessing I never told you the story about the time that I met Mr. Bagley. No. Junior? No, he did not. So I was still working at Disneyland at the time. Sure. And uh, I was working at Splash Mountain, and he had, like, his, his log came back into the station. He got out, and he came over, and he's like, uh, I lost my hat on the ride. <laughs> and now uh, this is a fairly like, common occurrence. You go down, like, yeah. the big drop, your hat comes yeah. off, it ends up in the flume. And I right. told him, I'm like, well, you know, usually they'll end up, you know, floating back into the station. If we see it, we'll pull it out, just come back in a couple hours and see if we have it. And he's like, well... It's mostly recycled paper, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and then he walked away. That's so <laughs> Ed Bickley Jr. is like a huge environmentalist. Okay. So it doesn't surprise me that his hat was like 95% recycled paper. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently disposable. That's wild. Because it probably was just going to come back as like a clump of wet paper. Yeah. That used to look like a hat. Sure. That's my Ed Bickley Jr. story. Good story. <laughs> was it? Uh, you yeah. <laughs> know. So what's going on? Weather still suck? Always, man. Massachusetts just constantly. I heard yet another storm coming next week. Probably. It was nice yesterday. It was really nice yesterday. I just wore a hoodie. And then today it's cold again. And then tomorrow it's colder. It just goes like this is what it does. It like gets nice enough just for you to remember that it's almost spring. And then it just it's just a beat down after that and miserable. So how much time of nice weather do you get between, like, uh, crazy winter and crazy humid summer? Mm. A week? <laughs> that sucks. Maybe? I don't mind the summer. I don't mind the heat. I'd rather be hot outside than freezing goddamn cold. But, uh, yeah, no. Weather, not great. How about there? Nice and warm? Of course. Yeah. It's, like, sunny. 70 degrees. It snowed last week. When did it snow? Thursday. Thursday. Last Thursday it snowed. <laughs> Goddamn. Dude, you it's the middle right of now? March. I know. I know. I don't understand why people choose to live there. Me neither. 
like okay i get it like you know you're living there you have a job and stuff you can't just easily move but if you moved there and it was like your choice yeah why there's a good chance that I've already said this on the podcast before, but just in case I haven't, I'm going to go on record and say that the real fault lies with the founding fathers of the United States of America for not being smart enough to just, like, keep going south, maybe. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. honestly, why here? <laughs> why did you Why did you stop here and then be like, no, this is pretty good. Like, we live in stick huts, but, you know, these winners... This is not bad. Like, just go to freaking Florida or somewhere else. Maybe they settled, like, it was that one week of spring, and they're like, man, right. the weather here is amazing. <laughs> right. We're just going to set up. Nothing's ever going to change. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then since then, they're just be like, no, nah, it's cool. This will be over soon. <laughs> like, I'm talking like, literally generations have gone by where they're waiting for that nice weather to come back. <laughs> it's kind of a similar thing with... San Francisco. I don't know why anyone would have settled here. So they must have, you know, hiked up. I mean, the gold. Pen- up. Well, right. <laughs> but, you know, as you're like exploring California and you're like hiking up the peninsula, it's like all this great weather and you get up to the top of the hill and you're like, oh, yeah, see all that fog and shit? Right. Let's, let's set down <laughs> let's camp under there. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what else is new? Not too much, my man. I think you had a topic today. You, and you sent me a bunch of material I was supposed to read, and oh, I didn't. Yeah, it's cool. I didn't read it either, but we can still talk about it. <laughs> it's going to go well. Yeah, do you want to talk about, like, very, very high level? Because, like, I don't have a super deep understanding of it. But, like, high level places we could possibly use functional style programming. Did you want to talk about that? Sure. You can say <laughs> no, and then we can cut this out. <laughs> I don't. It's up to you. Like we can talk about like you use C functions instead of class methods. That's true. Is that the end of that discussion? (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Why don't you talk about that KVO thing that you did on receipts? Okay. Yeah. KVO is pretty cool. I'm getting more and more into it. Yeah. When I first got started with this stuff, like I just heard people hate bindings apparently on the Mac and you know, the, the general sentiment was, you know, KVO considered harmful. Yep. Just like anything yeah. else. But I'm learning it's really not that bad. And it, it leads to elegant code if you're not overdoing it. Well, I mean, it's just the purest form of the observer pattern, right? Exactly. It, and like you can absolutely misuse or overuse the observer pattern, but there's nothing inherently wrong with it right maybe uh people just had more of a problem with the the api itself yeah sure because you know you have to say i'm the observer and then you implement this observed value for key path and right. then everything funnels into this right. one method and so right. you have to switch on the key path or the object and it gets hairy right it's like we talked about before with some of the delegate methods like prepare for segue sucks because everything funnels into it and so you're doing some weird switching you know, weird case statements, it, it would really be awesome to not have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, I, I've mentioned this briefly before, that it, it's a pattern that I had originally seen in Objective-C.io, mm-hmm. and I'll link to it. Yeah. But the idea is that you create an NS object subclass that represents the observation of a single key path on an object. So, okay. and, and what this thing does is it just adds a sort of target action API on top of it. 
So with class methods, you say, you know, observe this key path on this object. Um, here's a target, here's a selector, and here's the KVO options. Mm-hmm. It returns an instance of itself, but for your purposes, you don't really care what it is. You just have to retain it. So in the example of this thing I'm working on in the view controller, we observe a valid property on the model. Mm-hmm. And we hang on to this thing that this, uh, this KBO observer gives us back when we set up the observation. And so as long as that sort of token is around, the observation is in effect. And when the token gets deallocated, it removes itself from the KBO system mm-hmm. for you. So you don't have to worry about any of this. And you know, inside each one of these objects, it does implement observe value for key path, but it's only scoped to that one key path. It's using its own context right. and keeps things pretty neat and tidy. So you're creating one object per observation. Correct. And it has a very direct target select target action chain. Mm-hmm. And, and every time... Yeah, and all the retained stuff is wrapped up into that object, and you're able to just kill that object at any moment, and it'll just clean up after itself. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to worry about um, letting observation info dangle and it could potentially get attached to some other sure. object, which is a real concern right. when you're using the normal API. Right. And it, it just makes it really simple to use. Yeah. So how are you using it specifically? So in this case, we created this model object for this view controller. The view controller has a table view where you select some options from uh, multiple sections in the table. And as you're selecting these things, it's setting the values onto the model object. And it's mm-hmm. kind of filling it in and preparing it for submission. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So that valid property that I mentioned before is actually dependent on two other properties of this model. So I've overridden valid, and it basically just returns, you know, these two things are present. Yes, it's valid. If either of them are nil, no. The other important bit is the, uh, what's that method called? Okay, so, yeah, the normal method on the NS key value observing protocol reference is key paths for values affecting value for key but what what you can really do is you can just implement key paths for values affecting and then the name of the of property the key. name yeah yeah so it's actually part of the method name right which is weird. So it, it's dynamically calling this method yeah you know based on its name it's it's a little weird when you first see it because you first think especially in the case with valid that like this is a real method somewhere right key paths for values affecting valid but it, no it's really just affecting right the valid key and you return a set of other keys, and if either of those values change, then a change will be emitted for the value key. So the way that works is basically that when you add yourself as an observer of the key, it checks to see what else it has to look at, right? Is that basically how it works? I'm not clear on like how everything gets is. set up, Yeah, what the order of operations is. But at some point, it looks at key paths for values affecting valid. Yeah. It sees that if there are change notifications emitted for these two keys, one mm-hmm. or the other, mm-hmm. then we need to reevaluate valid as well. Sure. Send, send a change notification also for valid. So this is a read-only property, right? Yes. It's a read-only property, and you're overriding the getter. Mm-hmm. So you're yeah. not it's, – it's, it's just a computed property based off of right. two other uh, values on this right. model. right. right. So that as I'm setting these things, you know, like select a select something in the first section, select something in the second section, I've now set, you know, in this in my case, category and reason on the object. Valid is dependent on category and reason 
once those two are non-nil, my or uh, truthy, I, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I get a change notification for valid. All of a sudden, valid comes back as yes. I have that wired directly up to my submission buttons, and they're uh, enabled bit. So then, what does that part look like? You're doing self dot button dot enabled equals my model dot valid. And then in your KVO stuff, you're just having it re-trigger that. Yeah, so the, the selector I pass in when valid changes is just this like update submit buttons mm-hmm. method. And it does, all it does is like self.button.enabled equals object.valid. Yeah, you do get the change dictionary mm-hmm. as the argument right. to that action, but I'm not even using it in this case. I'm just using it as like a, a, a trigger to reevaluate mm-hmm. whether this thing's valid and whether these buttons should be enabled. It feels great. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And that's kind of tends to be like the classic example for stuff like reactive. Again, not to be dismissive of reactive cocoa. Like we've had conversations about taking another look at reactive cocoa as a thing. But that's the example in my mind that always sticks out as the example that people use for reactive cocoa. And it's the main reason that I haven't, not that I haven't taken reactive cocoa seriously, but that. Like I don't find that a compelling example for reactive cocoa specifically because I do feel like it can be done like this in an object oriented way with in my opinion like a nicer syntax and a nicer way to wrap that up. I agree. And I, I learned something about UI kit this week that reactive cocoa actually kind of skirts in some way. Hmm. And I was I was trying to do exactly this, but more like the reactive cocoa example of um form fields. Yeah. And where when everything's filled out, the button becomes enabled. Mm-hmm. I tried doing that. Turns out that text on text field is not observable, and because it's fact, part of the UI text. Uh, no, just because oh. it's part of UI kit. Just large parts of UI kit are not necessarily KVO compliant. I see. Weird. But if you if you um, if you use that function, and I'm. I, I don't really know what I'm talking about with Reactive Cocoa, but <laughs> it, there is a way to sort of like lift a selector yeah. and make it, um, you know, observable, basically. Yeah, yeah. Racks, so they're doing rack something signal, there. I think. You can create a racks, uh, rack, R-A-C underscore signal. You can create a rack signal. Maybe there's an underscore, whatever. You can create a rack signal based off of basically any property. But it's not doing strict KVO. It's doing, I don't know, I, I haven't looked at the implementation. Yeah, yeah, something else. So, I mean, that's one upside to that is that, you know, it works entirely with UIKit. Yeah. So that kind of bit me the other day. <laughs> I was pairing with someone. And I'm like, yeah, oh, this should work. And I thought I, I instantly went in and was like debugging my KVO thing. It turns right. out just text just doesn't emit. Where did you find out that it wasn't? I think I just went to Google and just said like KVO UI text field text. Yeah. And just, just like found a stack some, overflow post or like, is it in the documentation is my main it, question. It is. It, it had a link to the documentation. I'll oh, link to it. In the okay. Yeah, it just flat out says that like parts of it are not guaranteed to be uh, observable. This is why I think something like a combination of what you're talking about and that form thing that we've talked about, half a dozen times at this point, I feel like, but like this idea of you could do some kind of binding where you have the form. So yeah, the text attribute isn't observable, but you could do some kind of binding. Like we talked about in that past episode where you link somehow in an object oriented way, right? You have like a, a form, a form field binding between a text field and a property so that when you enter text in a text field, it, up, it automatically updates the property on a model object. And then 
you use your KVO thing to do exactly what you're doing now. So then you just check valid is valid. You, you observe the valid property on that model object and the model object updates itself based on its own internal rules of when it's valid. And then that updates your button. Does that make sense? Like just the reactive cocoa example, but in an object oriented. And, and you're talking about using the binding to have that intermediary binding object to get around the fact that text is not KVOable. Well, so, well, no. The, I mean, all all the binding, essentially at a basic level, what the, all the binding would do is assign itself. Like the simplest way to do this, the binding sets itself as a delegate for the text field, and takes a property, and maybe a model. So let's say it takes it takes the name of a property. So again, we're just going as as simple as possible to solve this problem. The binding takes a string like the key that it needs to set. It takes the object that it needs to set that key on, and it takes a text field. Mm-hmm. Uh, it registers itself. It holds on to the key in the object. We, it can do a weak ref on the object, but it holds on to the key in the object. It sets itself as a delegate on the text field. Then when did finish ended editing fires, it just says model set value self.textField.text for key, passing the key. Right, so you basically have three objects going at the same time. Mm-hmm. You have view controller, view whatever, wherever these text fields actually live. You're hooking the actual view object, the text field. You're hooking that up directly to the model with this binding object, right? So that a change in the text field updates the model, and then you're sending stuff back to the view controller with this KVO object that all it's doing is constantly asking the model, are you valid yet? Are you valid yet? Are you valid yet? Are you valid yet? And then when it's yes, it updates, you know, a save button or something. Core data has something a lot like this without the binding part, but it has that same kind of, there's like an is valid property on NS manage object, I think. Oh yeah. Which, basically just runs through all of its fields and makes sure that they match all the validation rules specified in the model, right. I believe. Right. But that's pretty much like made to work with bindings. Yeah. And I mean, this is essentially why I don't use uh, model-level validations in iOS, mm-hmm. just because we don't have the bindings and they usually end up getting in my way. Like I say, like it's you know these things are required, but I'm in the process of making it, and I want to save it so it's in the context right away. But no, I can't save it because I haven't filled out all the fields yet. You see what I'm saying? Like I'm trying to get it into like set up. Yeah, I see. Or like I know like in the normal lifetime of this object, it, like these things should be here, mm-hmm. but like in the sort of setting up process, maybe I want to save it right away. Yeah, just to make sure that there's something in there. Yeah, and then it fails validation. I just don't use it. Do you think? Like that binding that you were just talking about is a good candidate for something to go in something like a view model, because at the it, point where this thing is dictating that the button is should be enabled now, well, it it wouldn't. It, so everything only goes in one direction. So you can look at it like a big circle. You have the view controller. The view controller, all it's doing really is setting stuff up and then waiting for feedback, right? It does a small amount of uh, you know a small amount of setup code setting up these text fields, and then that's it, and it's done. And now it's just waiting for a callback. 
But basically, information goes from the view controller to the binding, from the binding to the model, from the model back to the view controller, right? So nothing talks in the other direction. The, the view controller never talks to the model. The model never talks to the binding, and the binding never talks back to the view controller. Information flows in exactly one direction. But with the case of the button... With the case of the button, all it's doing is, oh, I guess it's asking that it's valid. Right, and there's a method to handle that. And I'm wondering, does, does that even belong in the view controller? That's what I was driving at. Was It yeah. feels like that could be something on the view model. Like the bindings in the view model, the view model just says, hey, the button should be enabled now. But it only yeah. knows that because it's getting the callback. Yeah. From the model. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think I think that would be a really nice place for that kind of a thing to live. I think it's kind of splitting hairs at that point because the view controller that I'm envisioning in my head is like dead simple. So it's acting like a view model to a large extent. Mm-hmm. But I guess it wouldn't need – would the view model also set up the text fields and the bindings? Like how much of that stuff would you move – like, would you just move the entire thing? So it would have to know about the view, right? Like, the view model would have to have awareness of every outlet or UI element in the view to make those connections. Right. So I'm actually not sure. Like, do you initialize the view model with a view and a model object? If you do, then yes, because it can do that and still be self-contained. If yeah. not, I think you set up the direction of values going back to the model in the view controller, but in the case of the model dictating how the view should look should be in the view model. Yeah. Because if you're creating a view model and it's taking a model and a view, that that's weird, right? I think so. I don't think it should have that much awareness. No. I think it should talk in one direction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's weird that this isn't a problem that's solved? Like, not really? Yeah. Like, when I've looked at Reactive Cocoa examples and when I, you know got this thing working it felt like magic to me and the fact that it felt like magic was weird i was like this seems like such a simple thing for especially complicated ui programming that you'd want all the time right like why doesn't this exist like even on os 10 where they have bindings like actual cocoa bindings that's a thing i don't know maybe i just haven't done that i I bet some someone who's done more os 10 work can uh correct me or, or whatever, but I don't feel like people do use bindings that much on OS ten. Do you get the sense that people kind of avoid them? Yeah, I think so. I don't I, yeah. I honestly don't know enough, you know, AppKit developers to really know for sure. I just know what I've heard. We can we can kind of extrapolate from the iOS community that people are generally avoid KVO on iOS. Mm-hmm. Right. They seem pretty content to just write that glue code themselves. Right. For some reason people love KVC. <laughs> You know what I mean? I see probably too much KVC, but not as much KVO, mm-hmm. which is weird. It could just be that they see that like observe, and the, yeah, it's just just another thing. Just, yeah, yeah, it's just nasty. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that there are these holes in the framework that I feel like we deal with on a daily basis, and a lot of them are kind of like holes that you almost don't see anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not conscious of the holes. I just do things. And then someone is like, why the hell are you doing that? It's like, Oh, uh, because 
I always have, <laughs> like, because that's just the way you do it, you know? Um, it's like you're pairing with someone who's kind of new and you're just like, oh, hey, watch your step. There's yeah. a hole there. Right. And they're like, well, wait, why? Like, why are there holes here? Like, like I, don't I don't know, know man. Just step yeah. over them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. Like every core data framework, <laughs> you know? Like, why do I need a core data framework for all this boilerplate? Well, because do you want to write the boilerplate? <laughs> no? Then. <laughs> are you saying we need bindings on iOS? I think it'd be awesome. I really do. I really think it'd be awesome. I think that bindings on iOS would be killer. Um, do you know why they didn't make the transition? No clue. I wonder if there's like no a clue. performance hit that just was, that you just couldn't deal with on like that, iOS that 1.0. Wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. Although I can't imagine that what it's doing is actually that complicated, right? It's observing a value and then using kvc to update up key path right yeah and then and then observing the other way around like i honestly don't have enough information to say but maybe kvo was slow but it's not like they didn't give you kvo on ios like if they were if they were just trying to help you not shoot yourself in the foot then why'd they give us for example UI image picker view controller, <laughs> you know, that thing's a goddamn memory hog. Like I remember on iOS three popping that up and then watching my memory spike by 15 of the 20 megs that I was allowed to use. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd love to know why the bindings aren't on iOS. It may just be something that they felt was legacy from app kit that they didn't want in the first place. I don't know why. Stability reasons? Is there stability around? Yeah, I don't know. I, mm. Can you even set up bindings via code? You must be able to. I re- this is making me wish I knew more AppKit. I know. Did you know that KVO is using, uh, is using Swizzling under the hood? That's how it works? No. Yeah, when you set up to say that you, know, you want to observe this, uh, this key on this object, it swizzles that method provides its own implementation that hooks into the KVO system and then swaps the implementations. Huh. I didn't know that. That's, that's how they like kind of elegantly hook you into KVO. Hmm. So you can, you can create them in code, which makes sense. What's the API? I don't know. I can't find out. I'm just finding a bunch of references right now. There's a whole Cocoa Bindings reference. Anything else to say about KVO? I'm going to keep using it. Like we were talking couple days ago i i want to try reactive cocoa mm-hmm. like really get into the spirit of it mm-hmm. and then dial it back mm-hmm. and see how far i can go without using reactive cocoa yeah but like you know generally the idea of like observing values over time instead of like worrying about the state of things right now is right. the right way to think about things and i i want to work in reactive cocoa to solidify that mindset yeah I feel like I I get the idea of functional reactive programming. You know what I mean? Like at a basic level, I totally get the idea that it's push versus polling and it's tell, don't ask. It's both of those things. You know, it's Mm -hmm. instead of constantly asking something like, hey, what's your state? What's your state? What's your state? You just get notified that the state and then do whatever you need to do accordingly. Like that totally makes sense. And it, it makes a lot more sense than the current system for especially for heavy UI stuff like you know the amount of UI work that you have to do in iOS and and, and OS 10 like that's not an iOS thing that's just a 
native client problem, I guess. It seems like that kind of system would make everything a lot easier. Agreed. My problem with Reactive Cocoa is still just the API, you know? And to be honest, I need to look at it again, too. One, because I'm, I am getting more into functional programming in general, um, learning Haskell, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, and, like, loving it. Like, functional programming, I think, is super fun. Like, I really like the core concepts. So I should look at Reactive Cocoa again, but... Do you think it's really the API? Like, if we're just talking about, like, how you interact with Reactive Cocoa, I'm sure the API is well-designed. It's just... The fact that it's using blocks for everything and the block syntax sucks, I think those two is what makes Reactive Cocoa look ugly to us. Yeah, probably. I don't know that those aren't the same thing. I mean, do you think you could do Reactive Cocoa without blocks? I don't know. Like, well, that, That's what I'm saying is that it, it's imperative like, to the way can, that it works. Can you take those examples and clean them up so that they're not unreadable? Is that what you're asking? Kind of. Maybe with less chaining? But I feel like the chaining thing is a big part of what they pitch. Right. And that's chaining and chaining in general is something that I'm moving away from as fast as possible in a lot of cases. I just want to use fewer square brackets. Like that's a goal. Like even to the point where if I need to alloc init and then call a method on that, like I've been using new recently. If it's not a custom initializer, I'll use the new class method. Mm-hmm. Just been playing around with that just because it's a little cleaner. One less brace to deal with. Yeah. I'm I'm on a serious war on syntax. Yeah. Lately. It's it's like the war on terror. It's gonna keep going forever and ever. Should we like the less typing I can yeah. do, the less brackets I have to type, the better. Should we solicit feedback on our current experiment? Yes. You want to? Well well from whom? Our our listeners? Yeah. 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 So we're, we're experimenting now with um, – so the classic initialization pattern is you override the initializer or you create your own initializer. And then you do self equals super init um, and you call the designated initializer there to set self. And then you check to see if that initialization was successful. And then in some cases, people will then only proceed with the initialization – like they'll enclose everything in a positive, like, right. If this did succeed, then do all these things. We tend to do, if it didn't succeed, just bail and return nil. But I think we were talking about it yesterday and it's kind of like I was talking before about patterns that we kind of do just because we've already done, always done them. And I'm not completely convinced that that's necessary anymore because arc nils out pointers by default. So the same thing that keeps us from having to do, you know, NS object foo equals nil. Like we can just do NS object foo semicolon done. And it's going to be nil by default. Like the idea behind that only conditionally proceeding with the initialization, if super init passed was successful is that self could be junk data at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but that can't, happen under arc because under arc alloc will zero all the bits right in in the memory that it's allocating like right everything gets zeroed out right it's nil and so if it's nil and super init returns nil then self is nil and so then 
and this gets into another kind of holy war, but if then you just don't use Ivars in your init method and you only use the accessors, then self.foo is messaging nil, which is a no-op, so it doesn't matter. And as long as you don't have side effects in your setters, then it should be fine. And you can just override the initializer, self equals super init, self.foo equals foo, self.bar equals bar, return self, right? Yeah. And if, if it's nil, you're just returning nil like you would have. Yeah. If it's not, great. You're returning fully initialized self. Right. I'd really like to know if this is horribly wrong right. or just kind of wrong because right. I can live with kind of wrong. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Like if there's a really good reason that after initialization you should be checking if self is nil or not and then bailing early before trying to set everything, Right. we'd like to know. Right. So, so I was talking to Jack about this earlier. Jack is in Stockholm. And he was saying that he was feeling weird about it because if you do get nil back – you know that things screwed up down the line, and so you shouldn't bother. And he did say, like, if you skip the nil check, you run the risk of initializing extra things when your app's already in this sketchy state. But again, that gets back to not having side effects in your setters. Furthermore, like, that super init actually sets self to the result of super init automatically. But I think, and I, and I could be totally wrong here, but I could have sworn that there was some compiler warnings if you didn't set self to the return of super init. And then, and that, like, if you just do that, that's fine. But if you do self, if you just do super init and then do self.foo equals foo, then you get a compiler warning because it says you're not explicitly setting self, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's a warning. But it's, it's a weird, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like not declaring storage types, you know, not declaring explicit storage types, like not declaring explicitly declaring strong or weak or assign or any of that stuff where it's like something that we've done a long time because that's the way it used to have to work. And the compiler is getting smarter, but there's some cases where I feel like we're not keeping up with the compiler. So are, are you afraid that like we're relying on just how the compiler happens to work right now and um, that it could change? No, no, oh. not really. I mean, there is that argument of like, what if they do explicitly change the default for something to something else? But I'm more concerned that is the compiler adding features that we're not taking advantage of? Mm. Like we have a compiler. We should lean on it where possible. Right? Yep. And it's a stupid pattern. Like every person that I pair, every Ruby developer here that I've paired with, they go like, Jesus Christ, do you really have to do that conditional every single time? It's like, yep. It's like you can't declare some superclass that can do that for you. It's like, well, then you still, every time you override the initializer, you still have to do that, you know? So if we can just get away from having to do that. We have this assumption about the way this works, but there's got to be someone listening to this podcast that's smarter than we are. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd bank on that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty easy assumption. I'll bet there's a lot of people yeah. listening to this podcast yeah. that are smarter than us. So like if there's an actual reason just from a compiler warning level, like you, I deleted, you know, on internal, it's not like I'm going to do this on a client project. That would be dumb. Um, you know, something, something like this feels like it has to be a pretty extensive internal experiment plus a lot of research to make sure that we're not 
totally misunderstanding something before. Like, like I'm not going to go into a client project and delete all their conditionals just in mm-hmm. case, like it may compile and run fine. But what about that edge case that we're not even aware of, but we didn't get any compiler warnings, deleting all those conditionals out of our code. It seems to run fine. It seems like failing to initialize would almost never happen anyway. Like how many times do you think code you've written has fallen into that condition where self is nil in initialization? I can't think of any time where I've realized that was happening because I feel like I'd, I'd go like, holy crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the only time I think self like initialize has returned nil is when I've screwed up that conditional. And now I'm bailing early and returning nil. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> right. If self return nil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. Yeah. So please. I'd, uh, yeah. I'd love to hear if we're totally wrong on that. Reach out to us and. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us that we're geniuses or tell us that we're dumb. Either way. Buildphase. Thoughtbot.com. Yeah. App.net or Twitter at Buildphase. You want to button this up? Tell them where to find the show notes, Gordon. Yeah. Sorry, we got more spam. Oh, more spam? Yeah. Lenin from Ningbo Snape Pool. Ah, yes. Specialized manufacturer of optical testing instrument, singular. What do you think that is? What do you think an optical testing instrument is? Based on the next sentence, I'm betting it's a fiber optic fusion splicer and OTDR. That doesn't help. Hmm. Should we link to their product? (laughs) Yeah. Show notes for this episode are going to be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash buildphase slash 32. And like I said before, email buildphase at thoughtbot.com, app.net or Twitter at buildphase. And as always, reviews and ratings on iTunes are much appreciated. All right. Cool, man. See you later. Later. Later.